Only government can break the cycle that are crippling our economy, where a lack of spending leads to lost jobs, which leads to even less spending, where an inability to lend and borrow stops growth and leads to even less credit. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson in New York. And I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, January 8th, around 4 p.m. in the afternoon. We start today, David, with our Planet Money indicator. Give it to me. 1.76 trillion. That has something to do with the commercial paper market? That's right. Yeah, you're acting like you don't know. I emailed this to you five minutes <laughs> I <know>. ago. <laughs> I, know. I was trying to be more specific, and then I realized I couldn't actually remember. <laughs> All right, so this actually is a big deal. Um, the commercial paper market, which, as we have talked about many times on the show, is, is the part of our financial system where, where companies and banks lend money to each other over short periods of time, less than a year, less than 270 days, actually. Um, it has risen to its highest level since this crisis began. In other words, it had it $1.76 trillion of commercial paper market loans outstanding is the most it's been since September 10th, which is, you know, right before Lehman Brothers collapsed, which completely shattered the commercial paper market, which we have been reporting on. That was the initial cause of so much of the financial crisis we've heard about over the last three months, that was the cause of the fear that led to the $700 billion bailout. That's what led to so much. So so this isn't to say, so now we're totally over, the commercial paper market is fine, the financial crisis is over. I don't think we're ready to go that far or even close to that, but, but it's, it's, a, it's a moment to reflect. But you're about, if you're out there in the studio audience, you might want to have a little round of applause here. Yeah, a gentle one. I mean, I know for you, the TED spread is down to 1.26. When it gets down to one, I'm going to throw a party. You're going to throw a TED spread party? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And invite Ted. And invite Ted himself. All right. All right. Um, We should probably identify the tape you heard at the top. That was President-elect Barack Obama. He was pitching his fiscal stimulus package at George Mason University earlier today. Now, uh, you know, this morning we we have a Planet Money Conference call every morning. And, and this morning, Laura Conaway was on a train headed for Boston. She's having some meetings there. And she started laughing because she said, it's just so funny that President-elect Barack Obama is uh, promoting his fiscal stimulus plan at probably the one place in the United States that is least receptive to this idea. Yeah, George Mason University is sort of a den of sharp-toothed Austrian economists, who are exactly the the school who who would not be very excited about President-elect Obama's uh, policies and at least the stimulus package. So we've had a bunch of people on the show from uh, from George Mason, Mason University, Don Boudreau and Russ Roberts. We called Russ Roberts today. Um, he, like most of the economists at George Mason, thinks the fiscal stimulus is a horrible idea. Um, and we asked him if if he was listening and if he was won over by the speech today. I wasn't invited. I was deeply hurt. I figured he'd stop by for an hour or two to you know, pick up a few ideas, but, uh, or at least afterward. 
but no, no, he didn't. He didn't come by. Uh, and um, I'm a skeptic, as you correctly point out, on the likelihood that the stimulus plan is going to uh, save us. But uh, he did. He did find it worthwhile to come here. I don't know why. I'd love to know. You don't know anything about the backstory there. No, I think as as one uh, reader of my blog pointed out, I you know I think he just wanted to see how loud George Mason spinning in his grave would sound uh, by coming to the uh, the home of the last bastion of of um, Keynesian skepticism. <laughs> so when you say Keynesian skepticism, uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, we're talking a lot about these days because he is the British economist who basically created the economic model that that tells you you should spend $800 billion when the economy is in the state that it's in right now. Uh, talk to me about George Mason University and, and maybe George Mason himself. Uh, I, I call you an Austrian school of economics, which has nothing to do. None of you are from Austria, as no. far as I know. Ex- explain what that means and, and why it's in your DNA to hate fiscal stimulus. Well, it's kind of interesting. I'm actually a, a strange mix of Chicago economics, as I was trained at the University of Chicago, and Austrian economics, which is one of my intellectual uh, loves that I've come to later in life, which puts me somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, probably geographically. Um, the the Austrian school, which is associated with Hayek and von Mises in, in the 20th century, is was, who were in fact Austrian. they were actually <laughs> yes Austrian at least part of the time right. uh, Friedrich von Hayek and Ludwig Ludwig Mies, von Mises they they um, emigrated eventually to to other places but and came to the United States but uh, they were skeptical of the ability of Keynes to of Keynesian policies to stimulate the economy and they were highly concerned about growth in government as a threat to our liberty. And I, I'm sympathetic to both of those arguments, as are many of my colleagues here, not all of us. I'm sure there are folks, uh, there is a diversity of viewpoints here on, on the virtues of, of Keynesian stimulus. No, there isn't. Uh, I think there is, actually. You can find it. Uh, but let's Come on. That. Every economist I know there, I, Don Boudreau, Vernon Smith, Dan Klein, I, Peter Betke, I mean, these are... I guess I don't know every economist That's there. right. Yeah. So I'll, we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, many of us are skeptical about uh, the, the likelihood that government spending is going to stimulate the economy or create prosperity. We're worried about two things. One is the real resources that are inevitably going to be misspent by a political process that's a locomotive that's unstoppable and that will be pushed to do things quickly. The likelihood that the projects that result from that are going to be good uses of real resources seems to me to be extremely small. Uh, I love that everyone says this has to be uh, pork-free, hoping that a $800 billion or $500 billion or trillion-dollar increase in government spending is going to be free of pork is like expecting that a ham sandwich is going to be free of pork. It's not viable as a hope, expectation, or request. It's uh, a fantasy. So that's what the government's going to do. The question then is, is it going to it's going to spend money on some things that are not going to be particularly productive? The question is whether that money, quote, injected into the economy, as it's often described, is then going to stimulate the prosperity of the rest of the economy as opposed to the things that receive the money. The things that receive the money are going to get more prosperous, bridge builders and road builders and whatever else gets the money. They're going to get more prosperous. The question is about the rest of us. 
are we going to somehow benefit from some sort of Keynesian multiplier? And there, and the question is uh, highly uncertain. The empirical evidence for it is mixed. That is, the studies that have looked at the impact of these kind of spending programs are very mixed. Uh, proponents of Keynesian economics will point to World War II as the key event that got us out of the Great Depression, the government spending on the military. I'm a skeptic on that, too, based on the work of Robert Higgs, who showed uh, some very interesting evidence that prosperity during the war was very small, unless you were in the military, which, of course, military thrived. Producers of bombs and other things did great. The rest of the economy did not do particularly well. So it's not clear that there was a stimulus effect outside of the things that were directly spent on. The other side that we're worried about, of course, is the increase in centralization and power in the hands of a very small number of people who are going to be suddenly spending a trillion dollars. I don't think that's a good thing. I think it's a very bad thing. I think it's a threat to our liberty and our prosperity. Um, only a uh, wild-eyed optimist with a bit of uh, fantasy and then would think that that could turn out well. But I seem to be in the minority on that. So what was it like today at George Mason University? Did, did you guys happen to notice that the you know, most Keynesian of speeches was given at, at the least Keynesian of places? Now, there was something in the air. I don't know what it was. No, I, I, it wasn't very noticeable. I, th there were some roads closed off and some parking lots closed, and I noticed some extra security and police. And I saw uh, Mayor uh, Bloomberg uh, having coffee next to me. Uh, he was in, one of the dignitaries invited uh, to listen to the speech. Uh, I guess if you thought you were going to get a check, uh, you're, you get invited so that it would be a cheerful audience. But uh, I, I don't know how the invitation list was set. It, there are no students here. We're out of, we're out of session right now. So I'm, I don't know uh, why he was here. I mean, your friend Don Boudreaux, who's the chair of economics at George Mason University, we've had him on the podcast. He would be, you know, as, as anti-President-elect Obama's fiscal stimulus as any human being alive. Yes, this is true. I think and that's he's, correct. He's the chair of the economics department at the school with a major economic speech. Was, was he invited? I don't think so. As far as I know, the answer to that is no. Uh, Don didn't tell me that anyway. Maybe he was too embarrassed, but I, I think he was not invited. Were you guys joking about it in the hallways? I was, yeah, a little bit. It's, uh, it's, um, there's something charming about it, something um, um, surreal and uh, and entertaining about it. Uh, it'll be a fascinating time to see if it makes any difference. We're in the middle of a great social experiment, and uh, I wish it were otherwise, but that's uh, it appears to be something that's likely to happen. Now, uh, to listeners who are right now screaming at their iPods and saying, why do you have this one-sided interview uh, that just criticizes John Maynard Keynes and the idea of government stimulus, we are going to have a lot about John Maynard Keynes and, and people defending the stimulus package over the next week, because Alex Bloomberg and I are working on this big This American Life story on that topic. So you're going to hear a lot about him. You're going to hear people who support him, people who don't support him, uh, John Maynard Keynes, that is, people who like the stimulus, people who don't like the stimulus. Lots of balance, but thank you to Russ Roberts of George Mason University for giving us his view of the president-elect's proposal. Now, David, um, I think it's fair to say that I tell you you're, you're wrong a fair <laughs> amount of time, and, and you, you generally have a good attitude about it. Oh, yeah, some, sometimes. Yeah. Well, you tell me I'm wrong about science stuff. I do. Maybe we could do some more of that. That would be fun. Okay. Now, imagine that I gave a big speech in front of everyone we know, all the leading people in our field of radio broadcast, and just basically said that you are 
everything you've done is wrong and has made the world worse. Uh, I would be, um, <laughs> I'd be throwing stuff at you. You'd be upset. That would be, yes. Well, <laughs> or I'd think, what an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. That, right. So that is exactly what our next guest, John Taylor, did. He's uh, an economic professor at Stanford University. He's former undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs. And a few weeks ago, he did just that. He got up in front of a bunch of central bankers, his colleagues, central bank economists, and he said that a whole bunch of people that John Taylor knows well, has worked with for many, many years, like Henry Paulson and Ben Bernanke, were wrong, that they had caused this crisis and they have worsened this crisis. Now, John Taylor is not any old professor of economics. He's not any old guy just saying, I, you know, everyone's wrong. He is the Taylor of the Taylor rule. David, are you do you, do you follow the Taylor rule in your personal life? I do. I, I try to, though. I, I've fallen off occasionally. Right. Well, the, the Taylor rule, we should say, since no one who's not a central banker knows what it is, is basically the central guiding principle for central bank action all over the world, in, including in the at the U.S. Fed. It's basically a guideline that helps central banks figure out what the interest rate should be. So you have here a speech by the man who came up with the central principle of central banking saying, you central bankers are really, really wrong. I decided to bring the research that I've been doing on this, that we've been discussing together in one uh, piece, and and that's what I did. And it it was hard to do because, of course, this was criticism of uh, central banking and uh, going back to the uh, period of 2002, 2003. So... Very difficult to do. There, people are my friends and still uh, close friends and colleagues. So he was talking about mistakes that were made beginning before the time when we usually think of the crisis as starting. Yes, the the speech he gave in Canada. And by the way, we'll we'll link to it on our blog. You can read it. It's quite accessible. It, it's not a hard read. He um, he he divides this into th- basically three areas. I mean, the cause of this crisis he blames, like many people do firmly on Alan Greenspan, Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, for basically for not following the Taylor rule. And for uh, putting too much money out there in the economy. Exactly. Creating the housing boom and then the housing bust. But then where, where John Taylor goes even further is he says by fall of 2007, we already knew there was some kind of crisis. I mean, you remember the TED spread was rising yeah, but it was just like not on the front pages every day. You know, it was it was it really had not things hadn't totally blown up. Right. Exactly. But what he says is that the reason things totally blew up is the fault of Henry Paulson and Ben Bernanke, that what the way they reacted to the beginning of the crisis in 2007 made the crisis much, much worse by the end of 2008. Well, the first thing they did was. You know, like everyone else, saw that this was an unusual time. The interest rates in the banking markets jumped to uh, unprecedented levels. I called it the black swan in the money market. And but second, tried to diagnose what it was. And I think that they came up with a theory that it was based on liquidity that the banks didn't have enough money to lend to each other. Whereas when we looked at it and others looked at it right away, it seemed more of a problem of risk in the banking sector. The balance sheets questionable because the banks were holding 
the mortgages that were in, in default or being foreclosed on. And so I think it was a misdiagnosis early on that they thought it was more liquidity. It turned out to be a really risk issue in the banking sector. And so misdiagnosis obviously leads to bad treatment. If, if, if a patient comes in and is having a heart attack and you say, I think he has cancer, you'll treat the patient poorly in the wrong way and you're not going to address the, the real condition. So, so let's lay out this liquidity versus, um, uh, uh, versus uh, risk crisis or, or cre- uh, right. counterparty risk crisis. So uh, what is a liquidity crisis? This is one of these phrases we hear all the time. And I think for, for central bank economists, it, it, it just rolls off the tongue. But for the rest of us, yeah. we don't quite know what a liquidity crisis is. Yeah. Well, it simply means that people don't have enough money to uh, to buy things or to uh, finance things. It's Liquidity is another word for money, quite frankly, in the, in the classic definition of economists. So you, you're really afraid to sell things because you uh, worried about their value, so you're illiquid. You don't you don't have this feeling you can go out and spend, and you and you have the ability to borrow if you need to. So that's liquidity. It's really, uh, in fact, the Great Depression is largely a problem of liquidity. Try, people trying to grab currency out of the banks to so they would they could be more liquid. And and we know now. I think there's pretty much a consensus that. The central bank at that time did not diagnose the problem at all well. They were worried about other problems and kept the liquidity very tight. And, and if they had added more liquidity, if they had put more money into the economy, as, as we have described many times on this show, uh, the Great Depression would not have been so great. I think most economists Absolutely. believe that. Absolutely. That. that was the Great Depression, exactly. Right? Okay. And, and we were hearing, you know, us lay people, that in September or so of 2007, this is the worst crisis since the Great Depression. We were hearing a lot about the Great Depression. So I think a lot of us thought, oh, this must be like the Great Depression. So, so what, what was wrong about that analysis? What was wrong is this really was something about the the balance sheets of the banks, which simply means they were holding securities that consisted of mortgages that were going into default and being foreclosed on, basically a lot of bad debt. And, and Explain that, the queen of spades yeah, analogy well, that the, you use. <laughs> well, in the mortgage market, people had discovered that if they put together a uh, thousand, ten thousand mortgages into one security, one piece of paper that people could buy, banks could buy, then you could sell a lot more of the mortgages. But what happened was that some of these mortgages were being foreclosed on. People weren't making their payments. But the problem is you didn't know which was which. You basically could see one instrument with a thousand mortgages and they may be fine, another instrument with thousand mortgages and 50 of them might be bad, another instrument with a thousand mortgages and 150 might be bad. And you didn't know which the really bad ones were. So you didn't know which the queen of spades was there. So like in the game of hearts, you don't know where the queen of spades is. You don't want to get stuck with it. And people who, case, you had, people who I haven't case, played hearts in a long time, it's you get certain, you, you don't want points. And if you get the queen of spades, right. one of the guys you're competing with or gals has the queen of spades. If they give it to you, basically, or if they force you to pick it up, then you get 13 points. And and that's really yeah. bad. You'll probably lose the game. Right, exactly. So the same thing here. People didn't want to, don't want to get stuck with this bad debt, toxic assets, it's sometimes called. So if I'm a big bank and I have a billion dollars to lend, I'm looking, you know, Bank of America wants it, Wells Fargo wants it, Merrill Lynch wants it. 
wants to borrow money from me, wants to borrow my billion dollars, I don't know which of them is holding the queen of spades and, and, and is right. holding this lousy debt and lo- this, these lousy assets and which one will then blow up and take my billion dollars with me. Right. And that made people reluctant to lend, banks reluctant to lend to each other and cause these interest rates in the interbank market to be so high. So he, he's saying that the Fed mindset uh, was that the root of the problem was was really that the banks needed more money, right? But but he's saying the real problem was the more fundamental problem was that they were holding all these risky assets, and people were starting to worry that those assets were not going to be worth what they thought they were. Right. So so if they had addressed that problem, we might be in a different place. John Taylor's saying, but since they addressed the wrong problem, they flooded the market with 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 money. They lowered the Fed funds interest rate, which causes all sorts of other unexpected problems, problems that made 2008 a much worse year. Like what? According to John Taylor, we should say. Like, um, for example, one thing that happens when a central bank lowers the interest rate, it makes that currency. Like if the U.S. Fed lowers the interest rate, then dollars are less attractive because you get less interest for holding them. So so global investors, you know, the, like George Soros or whatever, sends billions of dollars to England or to Europe or to Japan. Well, not Japan because their interest rates are even lower, but to some other country where interest rates are higher. That causes an imbalance that makes the dollar fall in value. That causes a chain reaction that makes oil prices go higher. Because, which happened, right? Which happened. And so he says this misdiagnosis by the Fed of the financial crisis problem led rather directly to those really high gas prices, which led, he's, Taylor says, to much of the pain of the recession we're in right now. And it was clear to him that this was not the right thing to do at the time. That was one thing I was really eager to ha- ask him. I mean, obviously, with a year and a half or, or whatever of 2020 hindsight, it's easy to look back and say, boy, Ben Bernanke and Henry Paulson didn't make the exact perfect decision. But he says, no, they, they messed up worse than that. I think it was pretty obvious at the time. Now I think most people agree. But, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment, there's other things that people think about. And and as you say, they may have been thinking about what the Great Depression was like and liquidity problems then. But uh, I think think it was clear at the time. So what would you have done if... um Ben Bernanke called you up. He probably did call you at some point during this time. Well, I think this is a... I think recognizing the problem was the banking sector would have led to the kind of things that were eventually put forward, uh, assisting the banks, trying to get their banking balance sheets better, reduce the leverage ratios, increase the amount of equity in the banks. So ultimately, that was the kind of thing that happened in a much more chaotic way uh, a year later in uh, the fall of uh, 2008. So lastly, what, where are we now? Have, have they figured it all out and, and they're doing things right and we're going to get out of this mess? Or, or is it just as bad as it was in September 2007? Uh, well, right now, the, it's, in terms of the interbank market, it's just as bad as it was then. It got a lot worse, of course, in uh, September, October of 2008. But it's improved back roughly to where we were before the, the real mess in the fall. But I think they have they have been addressing the problem in the banking sector more directly and that's been good and i think going forward if there could be again a greater description of the overall strategy that's being taken both by the treasury and by the uh fed it would help 
again, in terms of reducing uncertainty and clarifying. I'd say there is, a, of course, a uh, the lesson that a lot of this has been brought on by government policy, I don't think has uh, filtered through. Of course, we're now considering another large government program on the fiscal side, a huge stimulus, which seems to me still hasn't brought into account the fact that some of this stuff hasn't worked and perhaps made things uh, worse. Now, David, I think the, the, the big takeaway for me is clarity is important, making it clear what you're doing, and uh, that, that one of the big problems was the constant changing, Treasury and, and the Fed constantly changing their game plan. Uh, and then, of course, John Taylor does not support the stimulus, it seems, that, that, that that's his opinion. I will say for very alert listeners, earlier in the program, David, we talked about the plant money indicator saying the commercial paper market had risen to its best level since September. John Taylor said the interbank lending market is still in crisis. Um, in September, before the the Lehman bankruptcy, that commercial paper market, which is uh, interbank lending, is 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 either closely aligned or a part of that commercial paper market, depending on how you want to count things. It, it was still in crisis before. Right, it was then. still not. He's saying it's back to being in mild crisis instead of severe crisis. Exactly. Yes. Which, Can I ask you one thing, actually, that I didn't really understand in yeah, his please. argument? Um, he says he faults the Fed for cutting interest rates, but that's actually one of the things the Fed is doing now to try and deal with the crisis. So what was so wrong about doing it back then? I could see arguing it was insufficient, but I don't quite see arguing that it was that it was a terrible thing to do. And when you look at gas prices going up, you know, you at the time even did a story uh, about how no one could quite agree on, no one could quite explain it. You know, there was some part of it was the weakening dollar, but there were you know, also increased demand and all these other things. So it doesn't seem like it was obviously the major determinant of rising gas prices. I, I actually... Agree with you, and John Taylor's not on the here now, so we can just sort of beat up on parts of his theory without him having the chance to to respond. But um, it does seem a bit of a stretch to think that in September of seven, facing the crisis, the Fed could have known. Wait, if we take this move, gas prices are going to, you know, gasoline or crude oil reach one hundred and forty dollars a barrel in a few months. Uh, that 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 doesn't strike me as a as an obvious outcome or that that many, many people were talking about that. I didn't hear anyone talking about that. And I was interviewing a lot of leading energy economists at the time. He He's not against them lowering it a bit. He felt that they lowered it. He did think they lowered interest rates too far too fast. Uh, he said that it didn't follow the Taylor rule. They went <laughs> farther than the Taylor rule. So. And it didn't fix the core problem. And it did, he argues, contribute to to this this thing that was bad, which is, for instance, the rising price of gasoline. Exactly. And he didn't say they should have known it was going to contribute to the rising price of gasoline. He's just saying if you do the wrong thing and then there are unintended consequences, you always know there might be unintended consequences. So, um, so that happened to be one of the unintended consequences. Right. Is, what is, they did didn't help. And actually, it, it hurt in some some other ways. Exactly. I guess it's like if you, you know, in my example, if someone has a heart attack and you treat them for cancer, you're both not treating them for the heart problem, but you're also maybe giving them chemotherapy, which makes them sicker. Okay. Thanks to John Taylor for that. We're going to link to the speech he gave and the other writings uh, that he's done on our blog, npr.org slash money. I think that does it for us today. Yeah. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. 